Our sermon text today is Genesis chapter 25, verses 12 through 26. Genesis chapter 25, verses 12 through 26. So the large section on the life of Abraham, which began in chapter 12, had come to an end. And today we move into the story of the next generation. So please give your reverent attention as I read, as I read these pure and perfect words of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit and given to us for our instruction. Genesis chapter 25 beginning at verse 12. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jator, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael. 137 years, he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived the children struggled together within her and she said if it is thus why is this happening to me so she went to inquire of the lord and the lord said to her two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided the one shall be stronger than the other the older shall serve the younger When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We see two parts in our Bible passage today. Two parts. One part about Ishmael and another part about Isaac. Very simple. We start with Ishmael. 
the firstborn son of Abraham. Verse 12 tells us that Ishmael was the son of Hagar, who was the maid servant of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This should remind us of a time in the family's history that was not their best moment, to say the least. Earlier in the book of Genesis, when Sarah was unable to get pregnant, they did something that was culturally acceptable at the time, but was nevertheless done out of unbelief. They did this because they did not trust God. Sarah gave her servant Hagar to Abraham so that he would bear a child through her. So Elder Victor preached on this episode last year in a sermon titled, Forcing the Fulfillment of the Promise, because that's what they were doing. They received God's promise about many descendants, about having many descendants, but they tried to make it happen their own way. And they caused a big mess. Hagar got pregnant by Abraham, and then Sarah got upset at Hagar and then abused her. She abused Hagar, her servant. So Hagar ran away to a place that was later called Bir Lahai Roy. And there, Hagar met God. God told Hagar to go back to Sarah, but also he said to her in Genesis chapter 16, verses 11 and 12, God said to Hagar, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So this was God's promise to Hagar. Later in Genesis 17:20, God says to Abraham also about Ishmael, Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes. And I will make him into a great nation. So what we read today in Genesis chapter 25 is the fulfillment of these things. Just as God had said, Ishmael produced 12 sons who became 12 princes and settled over against all his kinsmen. 12 sons. Fortunately for his brother Isaac, they did not celebrate Chinese New Year because that would mean a lot of red packets for these nephews. So Ishmael flourishes under God's blessing. Despite being the son of a slave woman and being cast out of the home eventually, he and his sons, Ishmael and his sons, become materially prosperous. They become prosperous. Spiritually, however, he is removed from the line of the covenant and from the line of promise, so that his descendants become spiritually impoverished. And this is highlighted for us in the passage by linking Ishmael to the land of Egypt. Notice that verse 12 specifically calls Hagar the Egyptian. Hagar the Egyptian. And notice in verse 18 that the Ishmaelites are said to have settled down near the land of Egypt. 
This link is made all throughout Genesis. We know from an earlier chapter that Ishmael married an Egyptian wife. And later, when Joseph is sold to, as a slave to Egypt, the Ishmaelites would be involved alongside the Midianites in that slave trade. So this link between Ishmael and Egypt is meaningful because the book of Genesis was written through Moses. And by the time that Moses wrote Genesis, Egypt had taken on a sinister meaning. Egypt means the land of slavery, the land of bondage and oppression and darkness. Ishmael and his sons, though prospering materially, were headed in that direction, not only geographically, but also spiritually. So that's what we see here in this, in this passage. What about Isaac, the younger brother? Well, he wasn't exactly poor since he received the inheritance. However, while his older brother Ishmael produced one child after another, Isaac and Rebekah struggled to get pregnant. They struggled to have children. Verse 21 tells us that Rebekah was barren. They had to suffer this barrenness for a long time. But Isaac prayed to God for Rebekah, and God eventually answered these prayers, and Rebekah conceived. She became pregnant, and I'm sure that it was a great joy for them to experience God's gracious answer to their prayer. We sang, didn't we, from Psalm 113, He the barren woman takes and a joyful mother makes. That's what we see here. However, not long after this, Rebecca started to great, uh, feel a great discomfort within herself. After asking God about this, she finds out that she has twins. She has twins. My wife and I sometimes wonder, what must it be like to have twins? It must be quite challenging. I don't know if this is normal in twin pregnancies, but we see in verse 22 that the children struggled together within her. And this, we learn, uh, is meant to foreshadow how these two brothers will interact, will behave with each other after they are born. They will struggle against each other. They will not get along. God tells Rebecca, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. This is a remarkable prophecy. The children have not even been born yet, and their destinies have been decided. As the children are born, there is more foreshadowing still. Esau comes out red, it says, ruddy, which is a link to the story that we will hear next week. Uh, when Esau sells his birthright for some red stew, and hence is called Edom, which means red. Esau is also born with a lot of hair, we see. And the idea seems to be that Esau was a real man's man. Even from the beginning, he is depicted as a very masculine, testosterone-filled baby. Later, we learn that he becomes a hunter, a man of the field. He becomes the kind of rugged, macho, 
manly man uh, that many of us men aspire to become and fail to become. He, he reminds me of Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. The younger twin, Jacob, on the other hand, comes out holding onto the heel of his brother. This is where he gets his name. The word heel in Hebrew is akev, and so he is called Yaakov, Jacob, the one who grabs the heel. Unlike his brother, his personality, personality turns out to be quiet, not so outgoing, reserved, but also devious, ambitious. His taking of Esau's heel at their birth is a foreshadowing, a picture of his underhanded and treacherous nature, his willingness to cheat and to operate in the darkness. There's even something satanic about it. Uh, about Jacob, like the servant, like the serpent who will strike the heel of the offspring, of the promised offspring. For those of you who know the Harry Potter series, uh, I think of, of Jacob as being like Slytherin and Esau like Gryffindor. So these two brothers, as different as night and day, very different, are born together but are destined for very different paths in life. In which, surprisingly, God will grant supremacy to the younger brother, which is very culturally uh, abnormal. That was not normal at the time. So just as Isaac was chosen over his older brother, Ishmael, Jacob will carry on the line of the promise instead of his older brother Esau. Jacob will receive the covenant of grace with his benefits and promises. And so Jesus Christ was to be born not through the descendants of Esau, but from the descendants of Jacob. All of this had already been predetermined by the time they were born. So what does this passage, what does this story tell us about God? Well, first going back to Ishmael, we see that God shows goodness and mercy even to people who are outside of his covenant. Those who are outside of his chosen people. He gives them good things whether or not they know that these things come from God. When the, when the Apostle Paul was in a city called Lystra, preaching to people who worshipped Greek gods like Zeus and Hermes, Paul said to those people that God did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And later in the city of Athens, Paul would say that God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This has been called common grace. God shows kindness to the world generally. He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Many, many people in the world who don't believe in God or thank Him for His, His blessings continue to live and live and eat, enjoy the bonds of family and friendship, and see the beauty of nature and of culture. All these things come from God. And this is very clear in the case of Ishmael. 
and his 12 sons. Ishmael was not chosen to carry on the line of the promise, not chosen to carry on the covenant promises, but we must not think that this means that God was unkind to him. It was God, in fact, who prospered him. God saw the affliction and suffering of his mother, Hagar, and took pity on her. He promised to make strong and prosperous the people who would come from her. So therefore, each of Ishmael's sons became a prince, a ruler. Perhaps they came to believe eventually that they achieved this simply because their tribe was, was stronger, was more intelligent, more determined than other people. But the book of Genesis makes clear that the only reason Ishmael prospered was because of God. They had nothing to boast about except about God's kindness to them. The material blessings came from God and were meant to lead them towards him so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Still, however great God's kindness is to the world at large, we marvel even more at his special grace, his special grace to his chosen people. To Isaac, he granted a different kind of prosperity from Ishmael, a better kind of, of prosperity. As Ishmael was cut loose from the covenant family and drifted off in the direction of Egypt, drifting off towards slavery and spiritual darkness, Isaac was kept by the grace of God in the covenant family. He was given a relationship with God and was even brought into closer, more intimate relationship with God by the challenge of barrenness. So to Ishmael, God granted son after son after son, but with Isaac, he had a different priority. Barren. Barren, so that Isaac would grow in his faith, even as his parents grew in their faith, as they waited for his birth. Barren, so that he would pray and plead and be near to God and put his hope in the one who created all things from nothing, the one who brought light out of darkness, who brought Isaac himself out of a couple so old, the scripture says, that they were as good as dead. But what a challenge, what a challenge this must have been for Isaac. As he watched his brother's family grow bigger and bigger, while he, the son of promise struggled to bring forth even one child. Why, Lord, why bless my brother and not me? He waited a long time. We see in the text that he married Rebecca at 40 years old and that the twins were born when he was 60 years old. He waited for this pregnancy 20 years. 20 years. The story of the church can sometimes feel like this. Among all the great powers and grand events in the world and in history, the Christian church can sometimes seem so small, so slow, so unimportant, so weak, 
But may no, make no mistake, the church is especially favored, just like Isaac was especially favored. You are favored. And the weakness, the smallness is often precisely the mark of God's favor, which is why God sent his only son in the form of weakness and why at the heart of the Christian message is a man dying on a cross. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That is the way of Christ. That is the way of the church. And that is the way of Isaac and Rebekah, who endured 20 years of barrenness, hoping, praying, waiting. How long, O oh Lord? They endured that so that they could prosper spiritually, so that their faith would grow and mark them out as people of God, as people of the promise, who would one day inherit heavenly riches and everlasting life. One Bible commentator, James Boyce, makes this passage very applicable to our lives. He says, has your career reached a dead end? Has it been years since God moved in your life in any dramatic way? Have you been left behind while others have surged ahead? This does not mean that God has abandoned you or even that you are less well off than others. God is teaching you to depend on him. He is showing you that he is more interested in what is happening inside you than what is happening around you. I hope that you and I can learn to think in this way. So often the small amount of stress or trouble can cause us to get so impatient with God. Sometimes we can be like spoiled children. I don't know if I've ever had to wait 20 years for anything, like Isaac. I've certainly become impatient within a shorter amount of time. But Christian maturity means that we entrust the big picture to God. We admit that we don't know and can't control how things will go. And we put our faith in the God who cares for us and has planned out each of our days every one of our days in all its detail before the foundation of the world we trust him if we are true believers of jesus christ we can have assurance that god has predestined us for eternal glory and therefore that he also works all things together for our good the birth of the twins reminds us of this Jacob was not even born when God's special electing grace to him was announced. He was not even born yet. Paul has something to say about this in Romans chapter 9. Paul says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. 
not because of works, but because of him who calls. And later Paul says, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Jacob was not a good man by nature. He's snake-like. He's a cheater. But God had predestined that Jacob would find God and become a good man. And that's, so that's what happened. His salvation was fixed before he was born. If you are a disciple of Christ, you too may have this great comfort that God in mercy and grace has planned out your destiny before you even existed. The story of your life in all its detail was in the mind of God before you existed, before the world existed. Dear believer, you have always been loved. You have always been loved. You did nothing to earn that love. And therefore, nothing, whether your sufferings or your sins, can separate you from that love. And so I urge you, brothers and sisters, continue to put your trust in God. Continue to look to Him for the fulfillment of your desires, provided that your desires are in line with His will. If your desires have become your idols, that's another story. But if you desire to do something good in this life, whether that's being faithful in your workplace or your studies, raising children, serving people, building close friendships, overcoming depression or some other emotional difficulty, getting better rest, or bringing someone to Jesus, whatever it is, if you desire to do something like that, and you find yourself, like Isaac, repeatedly stumped in your efforts, I say, trust that God knows what He is doing. His ways are not like our ways. From eternity, He planned to put Isaac and Rebekah through 20 years of barrenness. Not because it's good to be barren, not because he doesn't love them, but precisely because he loves them. He loves you too, even when he withholds good things from you for a time. Trust his guidance through this process. Let him do what he does. Let him work on your heart. And by that, I don't mean do nothing. I don't mean submit to your fate or empty yourself of all desires. This is Christianity, not Buddhism, not Stoicism. Christianity is not just about uh, gritting our teeth and enduring, bearing our sufferings by sheer human willpower. No, in Christianity, we pray our way through the barrenness. We pray our way through troubles. We weep before him, like in Psalm 6, and we ask him, how long, O Lord? That's what we see in Isaac and Rebekah. They could not get pregnant, so Isaac prayed to God. Rebecca was having trouble in her pregnancy, so she sought the Lord. They cast their burdens on God. They directed their desires to God, and they waited upon Him. Someone might wonder, but what difference does that make if it does not change my circumstance into what I want it to be? 
And especially considering this idea that everything has been predestined, planned out from eternity. What difference does it make for me to pray? Someone might be wondering that. Well, the difference is between facing your sufferings by yourself and facing them together with the God who alone can give your sufferings meaning. You choose. Would you like to suffer alone or with God? Prayer is not ultimately about changing things. Prayer changes things, but it is not ultimately about changing things. It's about being close to God. It's about having a relationship with Him. It's not like making a wish to a genie. It's more like a child talking to his father, sometimes about things he does not understand. I cannot, almost, I almost can't emphasize how crucial this is, brothers and sisters. Because if this is not our course of action when we find ourselves in a situation like Isaac's, if our response to delayed gratification is not to seek God in prayer, then we will turn to the flesh. We will come up with things that God does not want us to do, like Abraham, like Abraham did. In this regard, Isaac did better than his father did. Perhaps because he learned from his father's mistake. Both of them faced the same problem, you see. Both of them were unable for a long time to bring forth a child. But Isaac's response to this was marked by prayer. Abraham's response, at least initially, was to allow human schemes to become the answer. He tried to force the fulfillment of the divine promise by human methods. And the result of that was Ishmael, who produced a powerful group of unbelievers, as we see in today's passage. People throughout Christian history, from Charlemagne to Charles Finney, have repeated Abraham's mistake. They have failed to realize that if you try to grow the church by worldly means, you end up growing the world instead. So let us keep that in mind as we move forward as a church. It's okay to be small. It's okay to be slow. Remember Isaac's 20 years of no church growth. But it's not okay to try and run ahead of God. It's not okay to put aside this book, God's Word, for something that works, so to speak. And it's not okay to be prayerless as we do all this. It is only by faithful, patient prayer that we can properly advance the kingdom of God. Abraham, in haste and unbelief, produced the Ishmaelites. But Isaac, in faith and patience, in slowness, smallness, and weakness, produced the only hope for the Ishmaelites, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is also the hope of the whole world. So let us make sure that we do it right, not in human wisdom, but by the power of God, as we think about growing the church, as we think about bringing the gospel to, uh, to the lost, including to the sons of Ishmael. The prophet Isaiah mentions two of Ishmael's sons, 
Nebaioth and Keter, who will come to the Lord. We see this in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 7. So the prophet Isaiah prophesies that Nebaioth and Keter, will that prophecy, I say, Jesus Christ, that prophecy, we can understand as a promise. promise concerning a vast majority of our countrymen here in Malaysia who consider Ishmael as their spiritual forefather. We find these, these Ishmaelites bound in a powerful Egyptian slavery. We find them trapped in darkness. Our hearts should ache for them. Because we ourselves, being, being Gentiles, not Jews, we were also once outside of the covenant, separated from God and without hope in the world. For many of us, this time of Chinese New Year even reminds us of some of the old superstitions and pagan roots from which we came. But we were brought into God's family by his grace. So let us extend this grace also to these neighbors with whom we, we live and work. Believing the promise that God would draw the descendants of Ishmael to himself. Let us be praying that God would gather his elect from this people, that he would send workers into the field who fear not the apparent barrenness of this mission, who fear not the suffering that may come from it, but who believe in the power of God. Let us be praying that God would stir up our hearts, and the hearts of Christians in this country, to love them, to think of them, to be friends with them, to speak the truth with them, even to suffer and to bleed for them. For in Christ, the wall between Isaac and Ishmael breaks down and the two can be made one. May God make it so, amen. Please pray with me. Father, we see so much of your, your goodness and your grace in this passage. We thank you for this word that you have chosen us to follow in the footsteps of Christ, to be marked by his sufferings, so that we may have hope of inheriting his glory. We thank you that through the fiery, fiery trials, you continue to mold us into his likeness so that we may become like your most beloved son. Oh, what grace this is. And Lord, we, we long for our countrymen We have 
come from the same the same human race, the same blood. We see them. We talk with them. And we so long that your gospel can break through, that we may see a great revival, that many souls can be added to our family from their midst. Lord, equip us for this work and help us to never stop praying for them. Um, give us wisdom as we speak with them and live before them. Lord, we ask that you would draw them to yourself. Please do this according to your promise, even as we see in your word. In Jesus' name we pray.